0: Amen. Father, how good it is to be gathered together, Grace Español and Grace en Inglés, one church, one body. And Lord, now we come to, to your one word and ask your one spirit to, to speak, to speak to us, speak to our hearts, Lord, and show us how to, how to together to live for Jesus uh, in, this, in this world, to be on, on this mission that you've called us to. So Lord, speak, we pray, we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is, uh, it is so good to, uh, to, to be t- together, whether here or in the tent or, or online. We are, we are one church. Pat Timmerman is back. Hi, Pat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll come down and I'll give you a non-socially distanced vaccinated hug later, Pat. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it is good to be together. My name is Brendan, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we're, we are now, this morning, diving back into our First Corinthians series, in which we're kind of living this year. So I, I have a question for you. When you think of the 60s, you know, the, the decade, the 60s, what, what, what comes to mind? You know, and s- some, of you, some of you lived through that tumultuous decade, and, you know, and, but, and some of us youngins know it more by like, pop culture and history. Uh, who who here was alive in the '60s? Wow, y'all old. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but uh, so I I as one of those younguns did a Google search for this, <laughs> the the '60s. This is how the millennials learn history. <laughs> and uh, and the, the very fir- this is the very first image that came up on on Google search, uh, and I, I, th- I think it captures the decade well because the the '60s were a revolutionary decade. So many things changed in that decade. And you know, so when you think of the 60s, like, you, know, you might think of music, the whole lot of bands on there. Um, you know, the, the 60s brought a revolution in, in pop culture. My, my mother-in-law informed me that the 60s, that this is when music was good. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix. You know, these, are, these are bands and musicians we still listen to today. And today, half a century later, uh, today's music is still is downstream from the 60s, that revolution in music that we're still in today. And uh, another revolution in the 60s that you can see pictures of in, in, in that image, another revolution was the Civil Rights Movement. And in many ways, the Civil Rights Movement was a religious revolution. It was spearheaded by the persecuted church in America, the black church. And it succeeded, just just as the musical revolution succeeded in overturning that day's music, the Civil Rights Revolution, as a religious revolution, overturned the long-standing wicked orthodoxy of race relations in America, by calling attention to the hypocrisy of a white Christianity that claimed to worship Jesus and yet served Jim Crow. And so so many things changed in the 60s. Law and culture followed. And today, 60, 70 years later, we're still living out the implications and advances of the civil rights movement and that revolution unfinished still today. And another revolution, As I said the 60s were a revolutionary decade, another religious revolution that began to sweep over the country in the late 60s is what we might simply call the sexual revolution. The, the sexual revolution, starting in, 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 the late, in the late 60s, you know, the summer of love and woodstock and hippies and all that, and, and following from that, the sexual revolution overturned. The, the Western consensus on, on the purposes of sexuality as shifting from kind of the, the duty and delight of marriage and family to the expression of individual identity. It's a huge shift that happened in the 60s. And that, that revolution started as a grassroots generational shift you old people were the young people <laughs> back in the 60s and this generational shift eventually overtook academia and media and eventually law and so those of us who are my age this millennials or younger gen z we have sort of we've grown up our whole lives in the shadow of this new regime And this is just the way things are for us. Uh, And so my generation has either fully absorbed the values of the revolution or for those of us who are following Jesus, uh, we know what it's like to be strangers in a strange land because that's what it's always been like for us. Uh, But for those who are older, uh, and many of you feel the whiplash of a culture that has shifted dramatically within your lifetime, the, the tidal wave that has washed over Western civilization. And so this, these, all of these revolutions, starting in the 60s and continuing in their tumult today, and in particular the sexual revolution pose challenges of how we are to navigate this world as followers of Jesus. But I think that in particular, the ascendancy of the 60s sexual revolution in our day and that major shift actually positions us very well to hear the message of 1 Corinthians, because when Paul wrote this letter to this small band of Jesus followers in the first century, he was writing to a group that was on the front lines of what I'll call the first sexual revolution. When we talk about the 60s and 70s as the sexual revolution, actually that was the second revolution. Uh, There was a a first sexual revolution. What what Kyle Harper of First Things Magazine calls the first sexual revolution was the slow-motion tidal wave of the gospel crashing through the pagan world and overturning the traditional morality of its day. And you see, because in our, in our day, we often distinguish the, the new orthodoxies of the sexual revolution from the more Christian-based tr- morality. But we call that traditional morality or you know, traditional marriage. But I, I, I don't know about you. I'm not really a fan of, of that phrase, that traditional morality, traditional marriage, because that's, that's actually a historically short-sighted way to talk. Uh, Christian ethics are not traditional. They are profoundly revolutionary. They, they turned the, the world upside down with a radical and new vision of what it means to be human. And, and so what we think of as traditional morality uh, is just a rel- the relatively brief era in historical terms uh, when this Christian vision held cultural sway in part of the world. And what we see now was really just a brief interregnum between eras of pagan ascendancy. And now, when we think about our Christian ethic and Christian morality, Western civilization and American culture never did a particularly good job of living up to that sexual ethic. Uh, But for some time at least, and those of you who are older can remember some of this time, there there was a time when it was at least the generally agreed-upon standard. But that generally agreed-upon standard was not traditional morality. The, The Christian ethic is what, back in the first century, displaced traditional morality, pagan morality, when the gospel invaded and overturned Rome. And so Paul... Speaks into uh, uh, into this front line of this advancing kingdom, this radical new worldview, entering into the pagan world, and the gospel landing in places like Corinth, and people getting saved out of this traditional, this old traditional lifestyle into this radical new community, and so. You know, it, it, it makes sense that as, as the gospel advanced, that, that they had to kind of work some things out on the fly. And so Paul, a, a lot of what Paul has to address in 1 Corinthians is the clash between this first sexual revolution, this radical new way to be human in Christ, as it clashes with the old way that people grew up with that was normal. And so in, in 1 Corinthians 5, this is where we, where we, where we left off back um, before Easter. You know, Paul addresses this, this issue. He says, it's, been, it's actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and he says, and you're arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, we looked at this text uh, those several weeks ago, uh, but w- one of the things I, I want to show you now that will set us up as we finish the chapter is that, f- that word that, that he uses, sexual immorality. Uh, it, it is, it's the Greek word porneia. Uh, and, and Paul and the New Testament authors uh, do something really interesting with this with this Greek word, because that that Greek word "porneia" in the loose moors of the Roman era, "porneia"'s meaning was was originally restricted just to prostitution, and in being in in referring to prostitution, it didn't even have some of the same negative moral connotations that we would obviously think of. Uh, Influenced as we are by the Christian sexual revolution. In, in Roman times, it, it was just a word meaning, meaning prostitution. And prostitution was just sort of one transaction that was appropriate in some contexts and not in others. and th- There wasn't a whole lot of moral weight assigned to it. But what Paul and the other apostles following the lead of Jesus did with this word launched a revolution that overturned the pagan world of their day. Because the apostles didn't use this word in its pagan Roman meaning. Paul here and elsewhere, the New Testament authors, looked back to the Old Testament prophets who used this word to describe idolatry. Loving things, loving things more than you love God. To use as they use this word to describe idolatry as a kind of spiritual adultery. And the New Testament authors look to look to the prophets and look to Jesus. They look to Jesus, whose whose ethical teaching on the kingdom of God looked past just behavior and into the heart and and assigned moral weight to the things going on in the heart. Jesus said, even if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so the apostles took what the prophets said and what Jesus said, and they launched this entirely new vision of human sexuality in in, in which sexuality and really our whole physical being is imbued with spiritual significance. Like, this was new, that, that God's design for our bodies, for our relationships, for our sexuality, they said, is not just about the horizontal, the transactional, the relational, but it's about the vertical. It's a reflection of God's restored relationship with humanity in Christ, and so Paul says in chapter 6, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, for porneia, but for the Lord. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is, as it is written, the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So this, this, is, this is new. This is revolutionary. And so as this revolutionary new way of thinking about the world landed in pagan Rome, pagan Corinth, mistakes happened, confusion happened the gospel landed in Corinth and people got saved and they were, they were brought into this new radical community with this countercultural worldview. And they had trouble figuring out what that meant. What, what does this look like? And so, in, as we've seen in, in chapter 5, in, in promiscuous, permissive Corinth... Some people heard the gospel's message of freedom as as a license for further liberation. Is then well, really, just do do whatever, whatever you want, and and so the issue Paul sees here is is well, it's gone so far now that a, that a man has his father's wife, his his stepmother, and and others apparently in chapter six are proceeding with business as usual, casual prostitution that was common in that era, and. And Paul, so Paul, in addressing this, cuts off that thinking at, at its root. He says, he, no, he says, the, the church is called to this countercultural holiness. And so he, so he says to them, like, that, that person who's doing that, like, has got to go. Remove that person from among you. And so we, we looked before Easter as Paul unpacked what, how the church is called to this radical holiness, But that then introduces a, a potential new misunderstanding, which our text today brings us to. Because if holiness is that important, that Paul says this, that these people involved in this need to be put out of the church, well then maybe, this line of thinking goes, then maybe we need to fully separate ourselves from the culture. Right? Then the way of holiness is to withdraw into, into our convents, our, our bunkers, our holy huddles. And there we'll be safe, and there we'll be holy, and we'll be able to do all these things that Jesus wants us to do if only we cut off those people from our lives. And Paul cuts off that thinking at its root, too. Look at, at what he says here in, in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in, in verse 9. I'm going to read, read the, the, the whole thing here. He says, I don't have it here. Let me open up my Bible, actually. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up and, and follow along here. We have it up on the screen. He says, He says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people and here's his clarification that we're going to look at today, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Strong words, strong words from Paul we're going to look at to try to 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 understand what is is God's will for for us here, grace community in the 21st century. But Paul says this... This misunderstanding that Paul takes up, he says, when I said, don't associate with the sexually immoral, he's like, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of the world. And that, that phrase, not at all, is a really forceful repudiation of the whole idea of being a holy huddle. The, the whole idea of, of church as, as a holy huddle, a little museum for, for saints and good people, Paul just tosses that in the garbage and is like, no, 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 not at all. It's a re- it's really forceful language in, in, in the Greek. And, and on, on, on this, I, I, I hang sort of a big idea for holiness, that, that we got get to this, get this right. If we want to know what it means to be holy, to be set apart, For God to follow Jesus, holiness does not mean separating yourself from unholy people. In fact, holiness, real, true gospel holiness, lives on mission to those unholy people. This is the table that, that that Paul turns here. He turns the tables on us to, to say, okay, it's this holiness within the church is super, super important, but don't you dare think for one minute that, that holiness means that you are not interacting with and associating with and loving unholy people. And his strong, forceful, like not at all means that if... If you think that, if you think that to be holy, I need to distance myself from unholy people, Paul is like, you have missed the entire point of what Jesus has done in you and what Jesus is calling you to do for him. Like, you've missed it. And so what, what we see here, what we're going to see as we, as we move through this text is that... There is this narrow way of holiness but between errors on both sides. Between, for, so for us today, between capitulation to the demands of our second sexual revolution on, on one side, between, between giving up and giving in and going along with what our culture says, that's one error. And on the other side, monastic seclusion and holy huddles there is this profound third way of holiness. It's, and, and I'll call it the gospel revolution. And it's to be in the world, not of the world, and yet for the world. You, you might have heard, if you've grown up in Christian circles, you might have heard the kind of almost cliche, you know, not in the world, but of the world. To that, I add the third. And this is what makes it a gospel revolution. Not in the world, in the world, not of the world, and for the world. So as we, as we look at this, as Paul addresses, he, he lays out this clarification. He's like, not at all withdrawing from the world. And he says, but here's now how you have to deal with holiness in the church. A, a couple quick observations for, and clarifications from this text. First, and this is, this is really important for us to see um, in this gospel revolution, is that holiness is about a lot more than just sex. I, I, I think sometimes in our, in our own day and in the, the pressures and demands of the second sexual revolution in our culture, we can, we can sometimes make the mistake of slipping into a way of talking about purity that's all about sexual purity, and certainly that's what Paul is addressing here. But I'm only focusing on this issue because Paul is addressing this issue in the chapter. And you can even see when Paul is addressing sexual immorality, he is keen to press beyond that. He says sexually immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the drunkards or revilers or idolaters. He keeps expanding the categories for us lest we think that that, okay, If I, all I have to do is just avoid something, and then I've got holiness down. Because you see, God's kingdom doesn't just overturn our culture's status quo on sexual morality. It overturns the entire status quo. It's a whole new way to be human. It's not just the bedroom. It's the boardroom and the living room and the dining table and the marketplace and the mall, it's everywhere. And so Paul, Paul can't help, he's addressing this issue of sexual immorality in church and he cannot help but twice in these two verses expand it to include everything else. And so, so, don't, so don't misunderstand, don't take up the common misunderstanding that, okay, here we're talking about sexual morality, that that's all, that we're, that's the only thing that's important. Christian holiness is about a lot more than sexuality. And the second thing, a clarification to make sure we understand what this text is saying and not saying, is that Christian holiness isn't about shunning either. Because Now, when you read it on first time through, it kind of sounds like that, right? Paul says don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, who, you know, member here in the church if he's guilty of this whole arena of unholiness. And he says, don't, don't even eat with that person. And so, you, like, that sounds initially like, like cut them out of your life, shun them, boo, hiss as they walk by. But that's, that's not what Paul means, Don't associate means you can't have, if you are a holy people, you can't have unbroken fellowship with somebody is living in unrepentant unholiness. You can't have unbroken fellowship. You can't pretend like everything is okay. You can't be united in the gospel, one, one body. You can't, you can't link arms and affirm that what they're doing is good and right. Like you, you, just, you just can't. It doesn't mean cut them out of your life. It means you, like, you can't pat them on the back and say everything's okay, because it's not. And when he says don't eat with them, Again, that that doesn't that doesn't mean shun. It actually has a, a very specific meaning and context here. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about the Lord's Supper that, that, that we just together as one people, one body, just participated in together. And and of course, in the first century, the churches, the church in Corinth, probably met in someone's house, and so the Lord's Supper wasn't just you know the little Lord's snack; it was a meal. And of them all joining joining together and confessing their sins and receiving grace and celebrating the gospel. And what Paul is saying is, is you can't do that. The Lord, if, if you are living in unrepentant unholiness, that meal is not for you. Because that meal is about laying down my sin at the foot of the cross and finding new grace. And so, if you're not willing to do that, you go to McDonald's. This this supper is not for you. And so, so in both of those things, I think these are just. Re- helpful clarifications to understand what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about being the kind of church that shuns and shuts the door on somebody when they fall into sin. Perish the thought, let us never ever be a church like that that closes the door on somebody who has fallen into sin. Elsewhere in, in Corinthians and elsewhere when he talks about this process of church discipline. He talks about that there comes a point when if someone has to be removed from fellowship in the church, that at that point you're supposed to treat them like an unbeliever. To which I say, okay, how are you supposed to treat unbelievers? By loving them, by welcoming them, By sharing the gospel with them, by calling them to repentance, by inviting them over and sharing your life with them, you just can't do it like this. You you can't just say, oh, I, I am perfectly united with you, I have fellowship with you, come have the Lord's Supper with me. You can't do that, but you still are on mission, a mission of love to them. And so when he calls, when he's calling the church in Corinth to Remove this person from among you. Don't share that. You can't share the Lord's Supper. You can't come together at one table. What he's saying is, is if there's a case of unrepentant, unholiness in the church where these steps have to be taken, your relationship with that person changes from brother and sister, one family, to love on mission to rescue and win. Not shunning, rescuing. And so Christian holiness is not about shunning. The third thing to see here is that Christian holiness doesn't present a message of judgment to the world, but a message of mercy. He, he, he says right here, when, when he says, again, picking up that don't at all misunderstand me here, he says, for, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? To which I respond, well, Paul, in my experience, a lot of how the church talks about holiness is about judging outsiders, If your conception of Christian ethics, and maybe the the Christian sexual ethic in particular, if if your conception of that is primarily about fighting a culture war or condemning sinful people doing sinful things, you have missed the whole point. Because he says, that's not my job. He said, what have i to do with that that's not my job he says god judges god judges those there is a judgment coming that we warn people and plead turn to jesus the savior be rescued out of your sin but our message is one of mercy not look at those sinful people doing sinful things it was better back in my day no no we have a message of mercy what have i to do with judging outsiders he says and so, so in, in fact, as Paul is turning the tables on us, the, the impression that I come away with is that the strictness of the Christian sexual ethic, and, and it, is, it is strict, this all-encompassing Greek word "porneia," as the apostles use it, this is, a, this is a high calling. But the strictness of the Christian sexual ethic and every element of... Christian ethics, is so that the world can see the gladness of knowing Jesus. This is what our holiness is for. It's so that they can see what it means to live as people who have been delivered from judgment, not as those who judge others. It's the strangeness of our lifestyles. And, and, and this is where I say I think we are now in the 21st century finally uh, maybe attuned and positioned to hear the strangeness of the Christian ethic. The strangeness of our lifestyle is meant to lead people to the strangeness of a crucified and risen Savior who still saves today. This is, this is what our holiness is for not to withdraw into a holy huddle, but to live on mission, to, to go and reach a world. And so, you know, I, we saw this last time when uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were in First Corinthians five. But I think it's it's worth seeing again and developing a little further that the church is called to be a hospital for sinners. You know, this is a, another one of those kind of cliche things that you know the church is not a museum for saints; it's a hospital for sinners. And so last time as we were looking at this idea of church discipline, you know, I, I pointed out, like, okay, let's develop that idea that the hospital is where sick people go and the hospital is where relapses happen and medicine happens and healing happens and it's a slow and brutal process and so we're not kicking people out of the door for stumbling. That's what the hospital's for. And the church discipline issue is for people who are signing themselves out of the hospital against medical advice. That that's what church discipline is. But let's take this a little, develop this a little further this idea of holiness. That if if the church is holy, but at the same time a hospital for sinners, how does that work? Because this is one of the hard tensions in the Christian life, right? Like how to be holy and yet be on mission to love sinners. So let's, as a church, we are a holy people, we are set apart, we are called to the high ethic of following Jesus in every area of our life. And at the same time, we're a hospital for sinners. Well, f- think about in a hospital, and let's think about our holiness as kind of this PPE. Now, we're all this over the past year, we've all gotten really familiar with. PPE and personal protective equipment and masks and stuff like that. But, you know, in, in a hospital, they, they were doing this way before COVID, and they'll be doing this way <laughs> like, when COVID is, is long gone. And, of course, my wife now in the hospital is, you know, double-masked and respirator and face shield and all, all, all that stuff. But there's a reason that in a hospital that healthcare workers wear PPE. It's because what good is a hospital if the doctors and nurses are all just as sick as the patients? What good is a hospital if, everyone, if all of the healthcare workers catch the same disease? And we've, of course, in COVID, like, we've, seen, we've seen this happen. Uh, and so think about this. If the church is called to be a hospital for sinners, welcoming stumbling and broken people who are repenting and failing and repenting and failing, if that's what the church is supposed to be, then we have to be distinct and set apart and holy. Otherwise, we have nothing to offer. Otherwise, there's, there, there's no respite here for the weak and the broken because we're just as messed up as everybody else. The church has to be a holy place f- living out the ethic of following Jesus so that when broken people come in, so that when we break ourselves, so that when I stumble into that sin for the thousandth time, that I have people here who can actually help. What good is it if we can't actually help? And so the church is called to be holy, not so that we can be better and separate and safe, a holy huddle for spotless saints. No, the purpose of holiness is so that we could be frontline workers. And so that as a, as a hospital for sinners, our holiness is so that the church can, be a, can welcome the refugees of the sexual revolution the refugees of the sexual revolution because that, that's our that's our mission. In in this cultural tidal wave and the ground shifting beneath our, our, our feet and things changing so quickly in our lifetime one of the things that we have to realize as as people of of this radical ethic is that the sexual revolution which seems so ascendant cannot keep its promises the promises that the world believes of liberation and self-expression and enlightenment those promises are as hollow as the snake's lie in the garden and it doesn't take a whole lot of insight to look at the world around us and see the wreckage of this tidal wave broken bodies and broken families and broken children and broken people all around us and in this room this church is made up of the refugees of the sexual revolution because it used to, the the tragedy is that the proponents of this of in our day are the second sexual revolution thought and still think that they're leading us into this bright future, you know, the, the age of Aquarius, <laughs> as the, what the 60s told us, when in reality, when in reality, they're just leading us back into bondage to the old pagan gods. And it's brokenness everywhere you look. It's suffering and chaos and tumult everywhere you look. And here... and let me maybe just say it as a as a parenthesis if you're if you're here or you are you're, you're listening and and you would be one of those people who who would who would say i i think that the sexual revolution and liberation has been a good thing and i'm 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 all in for that um, first of all, can I just say thank you so much for, for being here. I know this is probably a weird experience for you, uh, but f- so thank you for joining us, and I want to just clarify what I, what I mean when I'm talking about this. I don't mean, when I, when I talk about pagan morality and brokenness, I don't mean that as an insult. Um, I, I don't mean it as an insult. Really, it's, it's more of just a historical observation uh, that, that this is not something new, that we've come up with, this really is just a return to the old ways. So when, I, when I'm talking about pagan morality, that's really just what I mean, is that this is just a return to something that has already been tried before. And when I talk about the refugees of the sexual revolution, that's not a pejorative either. I'm just saying, like, look around. Look, look around. Do you think we're doing that great as a culture? Like, no. Uh, it's a mess out there. And so could it be that... The Bible's vision for sexuality, far from being the old puritanical straitjacket that you thought, might actually be this radical new way of being human. And so, maybe just listen into what Jesus says and find and, and test for yourself. So, kind of cl- close parentheses there. But as as the church, if we're to it, If we're to be welcoming the refugees of the sexual revolution, the broken people all around us who have bought that lie, see, the gospel breaks into that lie. And the gospel creates new kind of people, those who can live in the world and for the world without being of the world. In other words the gospel creates people like Jesus, right? Because this, this, is, this is Jesus, right? Like, this, is, this is what Jesus does. And, and you remember the, um, how the, the Pharisees critiqued Jesus as a, as a friend of sinners? They meant it a, a, as an insult, but, but Luke 15.1, Luke you can go to, go to the next slide there. The, Luke 15.1 says, you know, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They grumbled. Can I just say that that is the glory of the gospel, that this man welcomes sinners. That's the only reason any of us are here today, is because Jesus Christ welcomes sinners. And yet he had this extraordinary balancing act which I, I, I don't know, I, find, I, I really find this to be one of the hardest things about following Jesus, is to figure out how to do what Jesus did of, of loving sinners without joining them. But I, I think James chapter 1, James is Jesus' brother, and I think he, he gives us a, a little insight here. He says this, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Like so you wonder what purity is. Here you go to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Put those together. This This is one thing. That and there does not mean two different things. Pure religion, James says, keeps itself unstained from the world so that it can reach into the muck and mess and hurt and love people. That's what pure religion does. And that's what Jesus did time and time again. We, we see him acting this out. We see him in this tension of, of celebrating with prostitutes, celebrating with reviled, treacherous tax collectors, scandalous. And somehow not compromising his own holiness, but it was in fact the very beat of his holy heart that sent him on a mission that drew him to those people. And may it be true of us today who have his spirit at work in us. May it be true of us that holiness does not cause us to withdraw but lean in. Here's a great quote by Rosaria Butterfield. She writes this. That said, Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Jesus lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. This is the Jesus paradox. If I can have the worship team come forward, this, this Jesus paradox, that this paradox of following Jesus, that this is the paradox of gospel holiness into which Jesus calls us. Because as the worship team comes forward, I want to show us one, one more thing It kind of brings all of what Paul says together. I don't think I can say it any better than how Jesus himself said it. I want us to go to John 17 and listen in to how Jesus prays for you. How Jesus pray, prays for you. In, in the garden, the night before the cross, he's praying for you, believer. And here's what he prays, John 17, 15. He says, Father, I, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. You know, if you've ever wondered, like, wouldn't it be so much easier if like, you could just get saved and just go, like, boom, be with Jesus? Jesus actually prays against that. <laughs> he prays, Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world Just as I am not of this world, sanctify them in the truth. In other words, let them be holy, let them be set apart. They're not of the world. And as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them. In the world, not of the world, so that we can be for the world. It's sanctified so that we can be sent. This is holiness on mission. This this is unstained from the world, reaching out to the world. This is what Jesus is praying for you. This is what he's given you his spirit for. To to shape you, to shape me, into this kind of person. To shape us into this kind of church that reaches out with unstained hands to take hold and rescue people from the muck. This is what he prays for us. And Father, this is our prayer as well. Because Father, the, the world is dying to know who you are and You have shown us in Christ the way to your heart. And so we pray, as we're going to sing here in just a minute, Father, we pray, make us more like Jesus. Make us more like Jesus, more of him, less of us, God. Show us, give us eyes to see where, where our cultural blinders are and they need to come off so that we can be more like you, so that we can be more set apart and more on mission. Father, we pray, make us more like Jesus. Amen.